You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Hey, we want to welcome here today, everybody watching online who stayed home, we're welcome. We're glad you're with us still, even though you're not here in the room. I want to give a quick shout out to all the worship team who showed up early this morning. I wanna give a quick shout out to Franco and uh, Josh and his team who were out clearing our parking lot so we could do this. All the kids ministry volunteers who showed up. Thank you for all of you. I grew up in Northeast Ohio. Um, this is what we call winter. So see, I wasn't like, eh, no big deal. So just thank you, thank you for all of you. Also, in case you didn't notice, there's paint on the walls outside. We're still working to finish painting it so that t- next week on Easter, it looks really, really good. The kids' ministry area, you notice the walls are up. You can't really see what's going on, but they got walls coming down, the doorways being built, all kinds of awesome stuff. God is on the move at Kingsway. It's very, very, very exciting. Let's just stop and celebrate to our great God, our great God. It's awesome. Can't wait. All right, what we're going to do today is wrap up our series on no boundaries. No boundaries, a little play on words there, right? We want you to know boundaries. So today is the one that we're talking about. I got to give a quick disclaimer because if you're at home watching and you have little kids in the room, you may or may not want to turn off the TV. So just play it by ear. You don't have to do it now. I will be completely appropriate. However, if you have fifth through 12th grade at home or here in the room, I really want to encourage you to think about having a follow-up conversation related to what we're talking about today. Because today we're talking about moral boundaries and now now everybody in the room is like, some of them are like, yes, and others are like, oh, why did we come? It was snowy. We had a good excuse. But it's an important one that nobody really wants to deal with in our society. So this is where it came from for me. When I was going through Bible college, what you would hear in every ministry leadership training class is you would hear about somebody who failed or had fallen in the area of their moral life. And so when your Bible college is using this as a caution, as a warning, like, don't become like this. Don't become like this. At the time where I was in Bible college, uh, there was this big deal going on, too, in the Catholic Church uh, that was kind of raging at the time where there were all these scandals and things coming out, and, and the Catholic Church was really struggling to figure out how to work through it. My very first job in Colorado, I went to a church who only about 18 months before I got there, I had no idea when I, before I got there, but they had an intern who did some very inappropriate things. Followed that by the next couple years, they had a couple staff members who had to transition on staff who did some very inappropriate things, and it had finally caught up to them. So here I was about three years into my first full-time ministry job. I was at a thing called CIY, but it was a leadership. We send your teenagers to CIY, but this was a leadership training for youth pastors, and I was sitting in the room, and they did this thing about how to kind of put some uh, guardrails around your life morally to make sure that you live the life that God's called you to live. And I remember asking one of the the guys afterwards, I said, look, at this point, I'm 25 or whatever I am, and I don't want to be that guy, so what do I need to do? And he said, Matt, here's how I look at my life. I try to set up roadblocks in my life from where I am to where I do not want to be. Nothing can stop me from getting to that place. If I really want to get there, I'm going to get there. However, what I try to do is put these roadblocks in my way so that as I push through each roadblock, it's kind of a slow down point. It's like a speed bump, right? And you go over the speed bump and you go, wow, that was really hard on the car. That wasn't supposed to feel that way. So that maybe, just maybe, at each stop point, I won't get to the thing that I don't want to do. 
So what I want to talk to you today about what are some of the things about that and why do we do it? Now, here's the thing. As I go through this, what I'm about to share with you is countercultural. What that means is the world around you is feeding you a completely different message than the one I'm trying to get you to implement in your life. It's telling you just do what feels good, do what makes you happy, Everybody's doing it anyway, and look how happy they are because we watch their TV shows and movies and read their celeb gossip, and their lives are amazing. So do what everybody else is doing, and you'll be happy. And as everybody knows, when you do what everybody else is doing, you get what everybody else got. And that doesn't always go over well in this area, does it? Here's the thing. Solomon, I always say, other than Jesus, the wisest man ever to live on the face of the planet. He wrote a bunch of Proverbs, wise sayings in the Bible. Here's what he says in Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. You know this verse, right, some of you? Lean not on what? Your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to God, that's him, and God will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Did you catch that last part there? So the byproduct of a life surrendered to God, a life that says, you know what? I'm going to stay on what maybe you've heard in a biblical sense, the straight and narrow. I'm going to stay on this path that leads me towards God is I'm going to trust that God's going to work it out. I'm going to trust that, that even when this path doesn't make sense, even when this path is hard, even when this path is giving me what I don't want but I think I need, what the Bible tells me I need, I'm going to keep at it because the byproduct, God says, is I will have health in my body and nourishment in my bones. Interesting, I don't know if you know this or not, Solomon is whose son? Anybody know? David, right, King David. And David is the very guy who didn't keep moral boundaries very well. And David is the same guy who, when he failed to keep moral boundaries, and he wrote his psalm of repentance, he talks about his bones wasting away inside him. Now, anybody in this room, and we'll touch on this just a little bit further into the message, but there are going to be people in this room who have not kept moral boundaries well. You've been having that relationship on the side your spouse doesn't know about. You've been watching those things on the internet and you think you're getting away with it. Or maybe you've already gone that step and have actually committed adultery. The good news is there is grace. But I want to save you from that. If it's not too late, I want to give you some tools to prevent you from the pain of looking at your spouse and saying, honey, you need to know about this. So, what does it look like? Well, for one, I need you to know this. What I'm about to tell you are about some moral boundaries. Moral boundaries. And moral boundaries are simply guardrails that are intended to keep you far from danger. That's what we want to do. We'll put some warning signs, some checkpoints in place. I just recently went to Peru and I think it was one week, it might have been two, but one week before we went to Peru, there was all this news. And what had happened was somebody drove a bus off the side of a cliff. Don't worry, it wasn't our trip. It wasn't going to be anything related to our trip. We weren't even really near cliffs on our trip, except for at one point. But everybody on the trip was a little bit anxious, like, so are we driving on those kinds of roads? 
So Peru has the Andes Mountains. The Andes Mountains are really big and really tall, and in many parts of those mountains, you're on tight roads, dirt roads, and there's concrete, but if you're going up into the mountains where we didn't really go, then you end up on these roads that don't have any guardrails. And now you've got two cars passing each other, all it takes is a little rain, one bad move, a sleepy driver, anything crazy like that, and if you've ever been in a foreign country, that's all they have is crazy drivers, and all it takes is one small mistake and you're off the edge. But then imagine that kind of road as compared to, say, this kind of road. Here we have, I mean, if this were no guardrails here at all, this could be extremely dangerous. But instead, you'll notice, right, you've got dotted lines to tell you which side of the road you're supposed to be on. You've got, over here, we've got rumble strips. You guys know what rumble strips are? My kids call them a different name that I won't say in the sermon. But you've got the rumbles. Three kids, three people with boys got that one. Anyway, uh, rumble strips. So if you start to go off the road and you go where you're not supposed to go, what is there? There's a really annoying noise that wakes you up when you're falling asleep. But yes, it works. Then you've got, I don't know if you can see this in the picture, then you've got a concrete wall. So you're going to smash into the wall before you go over the edge. Then you've got a metal rail inside a concrete wall. And then you've got this big hill, and you can't see it down here, but there's a train track. And then just in the really, really clear picture, you can kind of see a little bit of a train out the corner there. That's what I want you to do with your life. I want you to put some check systems, some fail safe, some things in place, multiple stop points where you go, you know what? I'm going to back this up because what I'm really trying to guard is not a sinful activity. What I'm really trying to create is purity. And there is a huge difference between fostering purity and simply protecting myself from a sinful activity. But little, little stop points along the way help to guard my purity so that it doesn't become sinful activity. How many of you guys have heard of Billy Graham? Most of you. Billy Graham recently passed away. God rest his soul. And Billy Graham was well known for something called the Billy Graham Rule. The Billy Graham rule, in case you don't know this, I actually grabbed this off Wikipedia, that, that amazing internet resource of quotable information. But here is the technical definition, if you will, of the Billy Graham rule. The Billy Graham rule, or now recently called the Mike Pence rule, I'll talk about that in a second, is a practice among male evangelical Protestant leaders. I love the way they write that. Like, nobody else practices it but that. In which they avoid spending time alone with women to whom they are not married. It's named after Billy Graham, a proponent of the practice. And Billy Graham was not the first one to do this, but Billy Graham was clearly the most famous person to do this. I once um, heard, I read an article so many years ago, I don't remember where I got it, but this started for Billy Graham because there were many scandals going on in the early days of Billy Graham, publicly, especially among some religious leaders. Billy Graham was concerned that one day he might go to his hotel room, and all it would take is a guy with a camera and a girl dressed inappropriately hiding in his room, and he walks in his room and somebody snaps a picture with them, and all of a sudden, he'd be in trouble. All he'd have to do is be in a foreign place at the wrong time, whatever it is, and, and, and a temptation might raise, and his guard is down, and so Billy Graham decided to put some rules in his life that would guard him, keep him from not just actually doing anything, but actually the appearance of doing anything inappropriate. Um, in fact, the Bible calls this being above reproach. Reproach being uh, nobody can actually accuse me of something. And so Billy Graham literally wouldn't go into his hotel room until he sent some of his people in to sweep the room, make sure that it was empty. They'd go in with him. 
I know pastors who won't even have female assistants, like personal assistants. One of those female pa- or one of the female pastors, one of those pastors who doesn't have a female assistant but has a male assistant, um, one of the reasons he does is because he's one of the pastors or was one of the pastors of one of the largest churches in the United States. Very, very well known. I won't say the name of this church. And I got to spend some time with him one-on-one. I got to ask some questions. And he told me about a time when after services, this one particular lady who he didn't know it had, had recently gone through a divorce, but she was coming up to him and she was looking for advice. And at first it was like, hey, I'm ha- helping somebody in my congregation. Over time, Satan started to kind of tempt him. And he started noticing, hey, this this girl's kind of attractive and she keeps coming up to me and she has needs and I'm talking to her and I'm helping her and this is how a lot of counselors and pastors get in trouble. They don't put any boundaries in place. Well, next thing he knows, after a couple months, he didn't tell anybody about it. He didn't have any rules in place or anything like that. He literally went up to his office after one of the services and she was waiting for him in his office and she made a pass at him and he got up and walked out and said, we're leaving and we're leaving right now by God's grace. When he got in his car, uh, he called the chairman of the elders and he said, hey, I need to tell you about something that just happened. Nothing happened, but this is what just happened. I don't know what's going to happen next, but I'm just letting you know. And then he went home and he told his wife. And he said, I'll just say my wife was not as happy with me as, as I thought she would be. I was, kind of thought she'd pat me on the back and say, oh, honey, thank you for honoring our marriage vows. But instead, she was hurt that he didn't draw the boundary line sooner. He drew the boundary line at the point where the offer was being made and he said no. But what had happened if he would have drawn the boundary line further back? He followed back up with his chairman of the elders and the chairman of the elders said, here's what we're going to do from now on. I'm going to meet you after every single sermon and I'm going to walk you to your office and then to your car every Sunday. So nothing like this can ever happen again. They created a new boundary that protected the purity and the sanctity of the commitments and the vows that he had made. But here's the thing. Remember, I keep telling you, culture is going to make fun of you. Culture is going to push back. Culture is going to accuse you of something that isn't even in your heart. In fact, if you know the reason Wikipedia references now called the Mike Pence rule, I praise God we have a vice president who has some moral boundaries. I really am. I thank God for that. I'll let you read into that statement as much as you want. But Mike Pence practiced this, and he was raked over the coals. In fact, news articles are written about it. And here's actually what it goes on to say in Wikipedia, the very next sentence. It says this. It is adopted, this practice is adopted as a display of integrity, a means of avoiding sexual temptation, and to avoid any appearance of doing something considered morally objectionable, but has been criticized as being sexist. Let's just acknowledge the elephant in the room for a second. We don't live in the America of 100 years ago, and I don't mean what you may think I mean. Here's what I mean. What I mean is this. um, Because most women in America today are not stay-at-home moms, so you have two working income parents, and I don't think that's either good or bad. I think Proverbs 31 tells us very much that, that part of being a godly woman is working hard with your hands. So there's nothing wrong with that. Many people will make a judgment about that. There's literally nothing wrong with that. But it's changed the shape of business in America. And so what we literally have, and I know some of you aren't going to like this, so send your emails to bedmonds at kingswaychurch.org. We do have inconsistency in American business. Men make more money. There's an unfair expectation on women at times. 
And there is unfairness. Men will grab their buddies, they'll go to the golf course. At one point in time, Harvard did a study saying there were more business deals done on the golf course than any business room in America. I don't doubt it for one second, but it leaves out the other gender. The pushback is not necessarily unrealistic in that when men only go to lunch with other men, they keep the female gender out of some business deals. And some of it is the old boys club. But realize, when you set these boundaries in place, you're going to have to get creative. How do I honor God by not treating women different than I treat men by not doing business deals or allowing them into leadership roles, but at the same time, protect the purity of my heart and my marriage by keeping myself above reproach? You may very well have to do ministry and life and business different than anybody else. But if you lean not on your own understanding and in all your ways acknowledge him, you might also just be blown away at how God blesses your work. That's what it means to have faith and to trust in him. Why is fighting for purity so important? I think Andy Stanley says it best. Andy Stanley says this, because purity paves the way for intimacy. Purity paves the way for intimacy. I could do an entire message just on intimacy alone. I want to give you like one minute, one minute. The word intimate to a woman sounds very romantic and appealing. Uh, to most men, it's like, can we use a different word, a better word? And herein lies the problem. Now, intimacy is the word both genders need. It really is the word both genders want. We may get there differently, but it is really the beauty, the beauty. In the English language, it's the best word we have to describe what God has created the male and the female gender's interactions for. Because when a husband and a wife come together in a safe relationship that is created for the purpose of pouring into and serving the other one, what happens behind the bedroom doors is a beautiful thing that allows both of us to uh, come alive and be safe in each other's presence. It's supposed to be the safest place on earth where your emotional and physical needs are met. And in this moment, something even spiritual happens. So if we dumb it down to simply the exchanging of bodily fluids, like much of culture tells you it is today. We actually rob the beauty of this moment from what God intended for it to be. I've said this before, and it always seems to make people mad, so I only ask if this statement throws you off at all, just pray about it and wrestle with it, because I'm not saying anything gross or perverse. I'm only telling you what I believe the scriptures say about this. The Bible says that when a man leaves his mother and his father and is united with his wife, the two shall become one flesh. It is talking about so much more than the intimacy of the bedroom, but it is at least pointing to the intimacy of the bedroom because what happens in that moment is somewhat godlike. What happens in that moment is supposed to be the uniting of two people coming together in this powerful explosion of feeling and emotion and unity, and it is supposed to be beautiful and intense. And in that way, and in that way alone, it is supposed to mimic the euphoric feeling that God has between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
It's this beautiful moment of, wow, I've never felt closer to you, more uh, vulnerable before you, more loved and accepted than I do with you right now. And when we take the beauty of that outside of that moment and we share it with others through fantasy, that could be images or videos or books or movies, what happens is we rob ourselves of the purity that actually paves the way for the intimacy. So then the closed door becomes about performance instead of about a beautiful, beautiful moment. And I want you to have the beautiful moment that paves the way for the closeness in a relationship and physicality and spirituality. So how do we get there? Well, in talking about this subject, but actually talking about another subject, Paul has this beautiful way of saying this. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict Training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. This passage is misused all the time in Christian sports athletes. This has nothing to do with going home and lifting weights. This has nothing to do with going home and training for a fight. This has nothing to do with you being allowed to sit around and watch March Madness. It has nothing to do with any of those things. Although if you want to use it for March Madness, you have my permission. What this does have to do with is simply acknowledging that we are in a battle. You live in a battlefield. And you don't dare show up for a fight having not prepared at all. I know if I were to go up against Conor McGregor, who's going to win? You, thank you for laughing at that. You know, I'm 6'8 on the screen. If he can fight that guy, I got a chance. I know, because he's been training for the fight. But you're in a fight for your marriage, for your heart, for your mind for your soul, and many of us don't train for the fight. We just wake up every day and assume that it's gonna be okay. By the way, God saved me, right? I accepted him, I received him, he moved me from death to life, and what you do not realize, what you do not realize is today is a battle, and tomorrow will be a battle, and so you've got to train for the fight. Someday in the spiritual world, you may end up against a really big fight, a massive opponent, one who's really strong, and he is committed to bringing you down. If your training leading up to that fight has been eating chips and drinking soda, you might just find you didn't have what it took for the moment. Praise God, his spirit is always willing. But if every day you're waking up and you're training for the battle, you're mentally in your mind and in your heart preparing for what lies ahead, then whether it's a little opponent that you know you can whoop or a big opponent that you're going to really have to pull out the big guns for, you know you're ready to go. And I realize I'm using deep metaphor here. I hope you're connecting with what I'm saying. 
it's important that we notice how far Paul goes. No, I throw blows to my body. I'm not just punching the air. I'm punching me. I'm disciplining me. I'm training me. Nobody likes to go to the gym. Okay, a few of you sickos like to go to the gym. Most people don't like to go to the gym, but those of us who do know the reason we do is because the little things I do today pay off in the long run. And there's always that guy who goes to the gym and he comes home and he's like, yeah, look at me. It's like, it's been one day, dude. Out of 10 years, trust me, you got a ways to go. The reason things like P90X and Beachbody and all those training places, the reason they have you take pictures at the beginning and every 30 days is because the change is so incremental, you don't see it. It's the same thing spiritually. You often don't see that you're training yourself for something until all of a sudden you go, wow, look at my marriage. Look at my kids. I know many pastors who've had private, immoral lives, and no one knew for years, and their families were a wreck, and you couldn't figure out why. But then if you were to track it back, how many hours, how much energy did they expend in their sin, and then trying to hide their sin, and then the shame carrying it around privately? And there was no freedom in their life. So they weren't able to train those around them to fight the fight as well. So what can happen? Remember I told you that the first piece of wisdom came to me was from these guys at CIY. And uh, I forgot to ask. I hope we have this video. Do we have a video up there? I'm looking up there. Yep. Sweet. I asked if we could get it this week, then I forgot to check and see if we could do it. It's not phenomenal quality. That's why we can't put it on the big screens. So what happened was, remember they told me, they tried to put these roadblocks in place so that it'll slow them down before they get to the end and they'll be able to stop and think. If you do that and you put roadblocks in place, it's important to remember you put the roadblocks in place. It's important to remember that you put them there for your good so that when you hit the first one, you don't just keep going. Because if you do, you might end up like this dude. Let's take a look. Now watch, this guy is right around in here. Oh, here he is, right here. Oh, there goes the first roadblock. Yeah, forget it. Who cares? I'm gonna win this race anyway. Nope. Nope, oh, up, oh, up, oh. oh no, 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 I'm gonna finish. Nope, here we go, get out of the way, dude. I don't even, <laughs> there. Is that not the greatest video ever? Like, the shame of the fact that I blew it the first time. Just keep going now. Okay, so that's the danger. Here's the thing, if I force you to implement certain rules, you will be that guy. You'll wake up tomorrow, you'll pastor Matt somebody do this, I'm ready to go. <laughs> and you'll just run right through them. If your spouse enforces them on you, it won't work. I remember reading a, an article one time and it was talking about the difference between emotional change and logical change. Emotional change, they actually did a study of near-death experiences. People who had car accidents or cancers or whatever it is, and they nearly died. Like literally they thought it was over and they made all these promises to God. God, if you'll save me, I'll do da 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 it lasted somewhere between six and nine months in the vast majority of cases. It was an emotional moment. They made a commitment to God. It didn't stick. But then they compared that to people who made a change of heart. They literally repented and said, I no longer want to live this way. Whatever the decision was, 
And they changed, and those changes lasted well over 80% of the time. See, there's a difference between getting motivated and saying, yeah, I'm going to do it this time, and Pastor Matt told me to no longer do X, Y, and Z. You're going to be that dude. But if in your heart you recognize, man, I, I, I've sinned against the Lord. I need to make some changes. I need to get this right. I need to put some pieces in place in my life to guard that, to make sure that happens. There's a better chance it's going to work. That's why the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders in the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Okay, so quick question, right? Look internally for a second. Do you know, just off the top of your head, what is it that's entangling you? Think about that guy running at the end. Right at the end, he trips over one of those things, and he's got this thing wrapped around his body, and now he's in the wrong lane. He's messing everybody else in his life up, trying to finish the race. What is it that's wrapped around you that if you were just to throw it off in the area of your morality, you feel like everything else would get easier and improve, even if it's hard and impossible and feels difficult to do? What is it? Do you know? Go read the rest of Hebrews 12. It's all about God disciplining us because he loves us. It's all about training. It's all about, go down just a few verses, being pure. Being pure. And the jokes I tell and the things I watch, because if you don't, you're going to run the race limping. I was a cross-country runner after I broke my pelvic bone. I couldn't play football or baseball or anything else anymore, but I still had all those genes in me, like I wanted to do those things. So one day, I was before a cross-country meet, and it was actually an invitational where a lot of schools came together to race together. And I don't remember how many schools were at this invitational. It wasn't a huge one, but there was like six or eight other schools, and we were all going to be racing each other. And so we had more time beforehand. We had to drive to a place, and uh, they had, we were out on a sports field, kind of like the one in Plainfield out there. Like they've got all those massive sports fields out there. And we were out there, and they had um, what at the time we called a football gauntlet. I don't even know if they call it that today. It looks like this. So you, you run in one end, and, and these things are supposed to mimic like tacklers. Like you're running through them, and you run through with pads, and you, you get hit by them. And, as each one, and we're staring at this thing, and, and uh, one of my friends goes, Man, that thing looks gnarly if you don't have pads. And I'm like, oh, I could run through that. And he said, I dare you to run through that. And I said, I got run through that piece of cake. I used to be a running back. That's what I did. I know. And I was like Barry Sanders, like 5'2". And anyway, I was like, I could run through that easily. He's like, do it then. I said, fine, I'll do it then. And I ran through. And I ran as if I had a football. And one of these things snapped back somehow. Like I think I put my hand out and hit it. And it slipped off and it hit me in the ribs. And I thought I broke my rib. And I got to the other side, and because I'm a guy, what did I say? That was awesome. Now, inside, I am screaming. The race is in about 15 minutes. I go up to the line. I'm, like, trying to stretch or whatever. I run the race. The whole race, I'm, like, holding my side. They took me to the doctors. I lied to my parents about what I did. I think, Mom, if you're watching, I think it's the first time I've ever told you. I lie. They're like, what's wrong? I'm like, I don't know, doc, but when I was running, it was really hurting. He's like, touchy. He's like, are you tender there? Nope. No, I'm good. I don't know. I just, I don't know what it is. My parents couldn't diagnose it. They, I took me to follow-up doctors. They didn't know what was going on. 
Well, maybe he pulled a muscle. Yeah, I'm sure that's what it was. Man, I was hurting for a month, but here's the thing. I was running the race wounded. I was running the race limping. And here's the other thing. My friends I'd surround me with talked me into this. One of my friends went through after me. <laughs> Six months later in the next school year, he's telling me, it was nine months later, he's telling me about how bad he was hurting. We got two blind people trying to lead each other and encourage each other. Does that work? That's not a knock on anybody who's blind in the room. It's the whole analogy of the blind leading the blind. Does that work? No. So here's my piece of wisdom to leave you with on this message. See, what happens is we, we surround ourselves with people who aren't necessarily any better for us. It's hard for the alcoholic to go to the alcoholic and say, hey, would you help me overcome my alcoholism? Sure, what do you need me to do? Just tell me to do everything you're not doing. It doesn't work real well, does it? See, what we need is we need people in our lives who will speak truth and wisdom. They're willing to help us. The Bible calls us wise counselors. In fact, again, Solomon in Proverbs 15 says this, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. So not only do you need a plan, like what am I going to stop doing and what am I going to start doing to, to protect my purity? What am I going to stop doing? What am I going to start doing to protect my purity? I've got to come up with it, but I need some people in my life who might be able to weigh into it and say, you know what? You need to move that boundary back further. Or, you know what, brother, that doesn't sound like a very helpful boundary. That sounds like you're, you're trying to make it as easy on yourself as possible. I think you need to maybe think about this. A guy named Henry Cloud, Dr. Henry Cloud, he wrote a lot of great books. He said this. Really what we're talking about is accountability. And he said, you know what, accountability is not punishing or judging each other. It is simply asking, are we doing the right things in the right ways at the right times? Now, what would it look like if in your life, and here's what I recommend. I recommend ladies with ladies and men with men. What would it look like if you had a couple people in your life? I know life groups who do this. They break up into gender every once in a while. Like the ladies just meet and the men just meet, and they actually take turns. The ladies will watch the kids. The guys will hire babysitters, and they'll meet. <laughs> joking. They'll meet and just ask some questions. Hey, are you doing the things you need to be doing? Are you doing them the way you need to do them? Are you doing them when you need to be doing them? The thing is, those people in your life that are speaking to you, they need to be wise. So what does it look like? I, I, let me just give you two tips real quick, two tips. Who are they? Number one, they need to be wise and encouraging, these people. If you meet somebody and you think to yourself, they aren't wise enough to help me, then they're not the right person to invite into this relationship. If they're judgmental, cruel, or harsh, now listen, we speak the truth, but we speak it in love. They're probably not the right people. Because the first moment you feel judged, you know what you will do? You'll do what Adam and Eve did. What did Adam and Eve do? Hide. You'll run and hide from them, and then it's not helpful. You're trying to find people to invite into your life and say, you know what? I need somebody else to ask me the right questions. I'm giving you permission to do this, and I'm promising you I'm not going to hide from you. I'm just going to be open, and I'm going to be honest about this because it's too important for me not to. So then you need to pick people who are going to encourage you. They're going to come alongside you. They're going to reach out. And number two, what do they do? What do they do? It's this simple. It's this simple. They encourage and they challenge you to live out clear, mutually agreed upon expectations. Here's what that means. 
You're going to sit down and say, here's the boundaries I need to put in place. Here's the things I need to start doing. Here's the things I need to stop doing. And I'm going to, here's what, I'm going to check in with you, whatever it is. I'm going to come to you every, whatever at this time. Or I want you to call me or text me at this time. Are you willing to do that? Yes. It's clear. It's mutually agreed upon. Then they're going to say, well, here's what I'm asking you to do. Would you do this? Would you do this? Yes. Yes, I'll do this. And then that's called accountability. Are you actually in God's word? Are you actually spending time with God, developing a heart for him? Are you actually loving and serving your family? Are you spending too much time on the golf course or at work or shopping or on Facebook or whatever it is? And then you can look at them and say, yeah, I am, or no, I'm not. And when you're off, they're going to say, so what do we need to do to get you back on track? Do you need to go apologize to your spouse? Or do you need to go home right now? Do you need me to put a password on your phone that only I know? You can't even get to certain places without me doing it. What do we need to do to guard your purity? And then lastly, Hebrews 12.2 says this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The reason we're doing this is because we look to a life that's after this life the day we stand before our heavenly father who had given account for everything. And we look to him and we remember that he scorned our shame. If you have fallen in the area of your morality today, whether you believe in Jesus or not, it's not too late. Today could be the day that you say, I'm going to turn to God. I'm going to receive his grace and forgiveness I'm going to forgive those who've done this against me, who've hurt me, because God has first forgiven me. And I'm going to let today be a new day. The Bible calls that repentance. I'm going to leave the past behind me and press on towards what's ahead. What is in your life that you need to repent of to get back onto the path you're supposed to be. What we're going to do right now is we're going to go into communion. If you're sitting and watching at home, I recommend you go grab anything that looks like bread, anything that looks like juice. The graper, the better. And do this. If you're with your spouse at home, you're not single or by yourself, grab your spouse's hand. I just want you to spend this time talking to God. Later today, you may need to have a conversation with your spouse related to this content. You may need to go to a friend and have a conversation about this content. But this is your three-minute reprieve to simply talk to your heavenly Father. Ask him for strength. Ask him for forgiveness. And don't be afraid to be honest. I know you're like, honest in a room this big, people will hear me. Well, then say it in your head because he knows your heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven. I thank you for Jesus and his mercy. And God, some in this room have literally run right through all the walls and the barriers, just like the man in the video. And maybe they finished the race or they're sitting here today, but they're limping. They got some physical wounds, maybe even some public shame from it. God, I just pray right now, wherever we are in this room, God, whether we're doing really well in this area, whether we're struggling, would you just wash us all in grace? We live in a culture that tempts us by inundating us with a message of sexuality. And then when we fail, they stand back and mock us for failing. 
God, it's very hard to navigate our faith in that world. But we have you, our spirit, living inside us, forgiving us and giving us grace, but also giving us the strength never to do it again, giving us wisdom and counsel and insight to set the right boundaries up in our lives so that we won't ever do it again. Oh, God, that we would be transparent and vulnerable and humble enough like little children to let you do that in our lives. Meet us now. Hear these prayers in Jesus' name.